For some time now, we've been doing a series on the stained glass windows in our church, using them as a focus for our, our sermons. We've taken each one of them, and uh, we're going around talking about them. We've talked about the creation. We've talked about the fall of man into sin and the results of that and God's plan because of it. We've talked about the Ten Commandments and the role they are to play in our lives, both before we became Christians and as we've accepted Christ. We've talked about the birth of Christ and what it means to us. We've talked about Jesus' life and ministry, him, how he is the light of the world and he is the word of life. And now we, at this time of year, are talking about the cross and the tomb. The overall title of this series is His Story and Ours. And you may notice, again, that the word His is capitalized because it's reminding us it is the story of God in the Bible and then how we respond to that story, why that book was written. And so last week we had the first sermon on the cross and the tomb in which we looked at Isaiah 53 and the meaning of the words of Isaiah 53 and, and discovered that he became sin for us and that we, as the song said, were you there when he, they crucified my Lord? We responded and said we were there. And now we are going to look again at the cross from a different perspective about those who were there. They were there. There are a variety of people there. And you may say, Pastor Gary, for those who were here last week, we've already covered the fact that we were there. Why are we covering this? Well, we are looking at it from a slightly different perspective. In 2011, there was a big major event in our world. It was the marriage of Prince William and Kate. And that wedding was broadcast worldwide. Millions saw it. Probably billions saw it. It was an event that people were greatly interested in because everyone who was somebody basically was there. All the family of the royal family were there. Dignitaries and heads of state were there. Um, but there were some heads of state who weren't invited and they were a little upset that they weren't there among those who mattered. Sometimes when you look at a major event, who is there says something about who belongs there and why they're there. We talk about that. I'm sure we've all experienced this in some way or another. There are times when somebody wants to invite us to an event or when we want somebody to go to an event with us, and we'll try to use such things as, do you know what's going to happen there? Do you know what we're going to do? And so we, we build up the event. Other times we talk about the people who are going to be there. You've got to be there. So-and-so is going to be there. Everyone who really counts is going to be there. I know you've had that experience. And this morning, I would like to suggest that as we look at the story of the crucifixion of Christ, that it's important to look at that event from the standpoint of what that event was about, yes, but also what it means to look at the lives of those who were there and why they were there and how they reacted to Jesus when they were there. 
Some time ago during Christmas time, I did a, a sermon on the people who were there at Christmas, at the birth of Jesus. And we talked about the fact that, that those who were there were those who represented just about everyone that could be represented. Jews were there, Gentiles were there, men were there, women were there, poor were there, rich were there. Religious leaders are mentioned in the story, and, and, and while some were there positively, such as Zechariah, others were there simply because someone came to them. They never really got caught up in it. We mentioned the fact that the common people were there. Strangers were there. Even rulers were there in that story. And it's interesting, when you, when you contrast some of the events that took place surrounding the birth of Jesus and some of the events that took place surrounding his death on the cross, you discover that there are parallels. Some, some of them are parallels that are direct parallels. Others are parallels by contrast. And I just want to share a few of them with you because it helps remind us of the importance of God's plan and to see the divine plan of God, that God was behind it all. The first thing we notice is that the angel announced the coming of a Savior to those shepherds. You remember that? The angels announced it. At the death of Christ, Jesus became the Savior. That which was announced became reality. At the birth of Christ, Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem because they were commanded to pay tribute to Caesar. At the death of Christ, he was accused of committing treason against Caesar. At, at the birth of Christ, King Herod the Great ordered Jesus to be to, de to death. At his death, King Herod Antipas refused to order Jesus' death. How interesting the parallels. You will notice at the birth of Christ, there was light in the middle of the night. And you already know the next one. At his death, there was dark at noonday. You will notice that at his birth, the angels sang to announce it. Glory to God in the highest. And at his death, the angels were silent to honor it. At his birth, religious leaders looked up the prophecies to find the place for his birth. At his death, the religious leaders fulfilled the prophecy at the place of his death. You will notice that at the birth of Jesus, he was called King of the Jews by the Magi. At his death, he was called King of the Jews by Pilate when he placed the sign above the cross. At his birth, his arrival was announced in the temple by Anna and Simeon. At his death, it was announced in the temple by the finger of God tearing the veil in two. At his birth, I'm sorry, I, this last one was not supposed to be there, okay? At his birth, magi and shepherds worshipped him. At his death, it was a Roman soldier who said truly, this was the Son of God. At his birth, he was born in a cave owned by someone else. 
at his death, he was buried in a cave owned by someone else. At his birth, spices were brought in to honor him. At his death, spices were given to anoint him. At his birth, angels announced peace and goodwill towards men. At his death, Jesus provided peace and the goodwill of God to a dying thief. At his birth, the prophecies were fulfilled. At his death, prophecies were fulfilled. And finally, and there may be more, at his birth, a variety of people were present and involved. And at his death, a variety of people were present and involved. From one degree to another. You may say to me, Pastor Gary, so what? What is the connection? And I believe the connection is it shows that God was in this from beginning to end, that no one else could be the Savior who died on the cross but the baby who was born in Bethlehem and grew up to be the Savior. No one else. If you think about it for a moment, the baby who was placed in a wooden manger became the man who was nailed to a cross. If you think about it for a moment, the baby who was wrapped in swaddling clothes to protect him became a man who had a robe, a purple robe, draped upon him in order to ridicule him. The baby who was protected by an angel from being destroyed by Herod. That baby grew up to be a man who was abandoned by God and faced death for you and me. The baby who was born in Bethlehem became the Christ who was crucified at Calvary. And it is that Christ who is our Savior and Redeemer. And it is that Christ who one day, as the men sang, will come again to take us home. And so as we think about all those parallels that, that remind us that only Jesus would be the one who would come and, and, and be our Savior and Redeemer by dying on the cross, we want to look again at some of the people who were there, not just even though they do the same thing as the people who were in the story at Bethlehem, they reveal that Jesus died for all. Jew and Gentile, men and women, rich and poor, leaders, religious leaders and non-religious leaders, <clears throat> all those were involved, and that's true. And the same people in the story of his, of a, not the same people, but the people in the story of the crucifixion also remind us that Jesus died for all. But I want to focus on the responses of those involved in the story of his death, their response to Jesus. And I want to challenge you and I want to challenge me to think very seriously about what has been and what is today our response to Jesus. When you think about Jesus being brought before the religious leaders, their reaction was here was a, an itinerant preacher who was taking over their role. Here, here, was, here was an unlearned man 
that people were flocking to and had become, they'd become more popular than they. Here was someone that didn't follow the pattern of what they thought a Messiah should be. He should be learning from them. And they were so blinded by their position. They were so blinded by their prejudices of what they believed to be true that they could not accept him who was true. And not only did they reject him, but they became his enemies. Not only did they want him done away with, they made sure that he would be out of their lives forever, in their minds at least. I wonder, I hope not, I wonder if there are those who, like some of those religious leaders, have kept Jesus away because he doesn't fit in to what they think a son of God should be. And then there, were, there was one of his disciples, Peter. You know the whole story, how Peter denied Jesus. Not once, but three times. And how he went running out when Jesus looked at him and ran out to, into the dark night to, to wail at what he'd done. He denied Jesus because he was afraid that if he acknowledged Jesus of what others would do to him. I wonder if there are not those this morning who in your workplace are more afraid of what others might think of you or what they might do to you if you acknowledge Jesus in some way. I wonder if there's people here who, when someone asks you if you really believe, you kind of mumble something because you're afraid you might not say it right. There's so many ways we deny Jesus even when we do something we know to be wrong, it's a form of denying Jesus, is it not? Then there was Pilate. Pilate who held Jesus' fate in his hands, he thought. Pilate who, who was the one who would decide whether he should live or die, so he thought. Pilate who didn't really want to make a decision about Jesus, tried to get out of it three or four times. You remember the story. Pilate, who questioned him, said, are you really the king of the Jews? Pilate, who said to him, what is truth after all? How do I know what truth really is? Pilate, who was so concerned about his position and power and, and his position as a ruler, decided that he couldn't make a decision about Jesus, so he tried to wash his hands and, as if to say, I don't want to have to make a decision. It's easier not to decide. I wonder this morning if there are people here who have been faced with a decision about Jesus, but they really don't want to make a decision after all. And of course, there was Judas, Judas who betrayed Jesus, Judas who betrayed Jesus because Jesus didn't fit his picture of the Messiah. But bottom line, Judas betrayed Jesus because Judas thought that Jesus needed his help. Judas thought that Jesus needed him to help Jesus fulfill his ministry as the Messiah. 
And we think about Judas and how he sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And yet how many are selling out Jesus because they think Jesus needs their help as they live their Christian lives. And so we throw out our 30 pieces. We sell out for 30 pieces of silver trying to show the good things we've done and good, how good we are rather than letting Jesus be the Messiah and the Savior that only He can be. Of course, there's the mob. The mob who many just, just a few days before had been saying Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna, are now shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. And when, Brab, when Pilate asked, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus, they shout for Jesus to be crucified. The mob who, who is there to go along with everyone else because that's the way it should be done because that's how everyone else believes, isn't it? That's what everyone else thinks. And so the mob mentality of our belief is we're going to believe that which everyone else believes. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who you just kind of grew up in the church and you have grown up doing what you think you should do and you look around to see what others are doing before you recognize whether it's okay or not. You've never made the decision for yourself. It depends on what others decide. And I don't know if Barabbas himself was at the cross. This picture shows him there. But certainly he was there because that cross was made for him. That was his cross Jesus died on. And, and the name Barabbas means son of the father. And there are some who believe that, some scholars who believe that his name may have been Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. And when Pilate asked the question, do you want Jesus of Nazareth to be crucified or Jesus Barabbas to be crucified, which Jesus do you want? They let Jesus Barabbas go free. And the thing we don't know about Barabbas is, what did he decide about Jesus? There are so many people around us that we have no idea what they've decided about Jesus. Barabbas was not just a thief, he was probably an insurrectionist as Jesus was being accused of. He may have been a murderer, and yet Jesus took his place on the cross so that he could go free. Isn't that the story of the cross, period? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we get to heaven, we find that the rest of the story is that Barabbas truly let Jesus take his place on the cross and accepted? What a wonderful story that would be. And so I wonder this morning how many here have recognized that that cross was yours and Jesus died in your place. There was Joseph of Arimathea, minding his own business, getting ready for the Passover. And suddenly the soldiers point him out and say, you, come here. He has no choice. You, you take his cross. You follow him. I mean, you, you, you lead the way. 
You bear that crossbar, not the whole cross, it was the crossbar. You bear that crossbar to Calvary. He had no choice. He was compelled. I wonder how many this morning are here because you're compelled to be here. Afraid that if you aren't here, what the consequences might be. More afraid of, of, of being lost than you are glad to be saved. And then there was the soldier who drove in the nails, just doing his job, just doing his job. And yet Hebrews 6, 6 tells us that if we go back to our lives of sin, that we crucify Christ afresh. I wonder how many might be making that decision this morning. Of course, there was the, were the soldiers who cast lots for his, his robe, gambled for it. While he's dying for the sins of the world, they're more concerned about getting a free garment to wear. While he's dying for the sins of the world, they're more concerned about who's going to get the new piece of clothing. And I wonder this morning how often we get so caught up in the things of this world, what we wear, what we do, how we're entertained, etc., that we lose sight of the great price that was paid for us. And then, of course, there was the two thieves. There were the two thieves. One on the right and one on the left. And at the beginning, they are both mocking him and making fun of him. But as one observes him, that thief begins to have a change of heart and a change of mind, which is called repentance. And he asks Jesus to remember him when he comes in his kingdom. And Jesus says, I will. The other thief remains hardened and refuses to accept. And, and those two... One on either side represents all who have the choice. Will you accept Jesus as your Savior or will you reject him as just someone that's not worthy of your thought? And I wonder this morning if there may be some who have mocked Jesus in the past but need to accept him today. And then, of course, as our scripture pointed out in John 19, there were a number of women there at the cross along with Mary, his mother. Now, now what's interesting is that Luke simply says that there were women there. And the Gospel of Mark says that the women were at a distance, but it only names the women, not including Jesus' mother. But John says the women were all nearby. Is it possible that it was Mary and maybe her sister who were nearby and the rest were all at somewhat of a distance? I don't know. But what's interesting is there, the women are there. And it's the women who are there and the disciples who have fled with the exception of John who's returned. And they are there because of their great love for him. They are there because of what he meant to them. They are there because they had put their hopes and dreams in Jesus. And I wonder how many today are here because your hopes and your dreams are in Jesus. 
and then there's John and Mary. And you know the story about that. You know how, how Jesus turned to, to John and said, Behold your mother, behold your son. And when we usually talk about that and study that, what we usually refer to is, is that Jesus was being a dutiful son and caring for the needs of his mother. And he was, no question. But I think this was also a symbol of Jesus saying to, to the believers who would accept him as their Lord and Savior that all of us are to be there to support and care for and encourage one another. And so my question is, in your reaction to what Jesus has done for you, in what ways are you willing to care for those around you so that they may sense and feel the love of Jesus too? Do you catch that at all? I don't have a picture of this one, but, but then there's Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who at the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry had, had decided that he was going to come at night because he didn't want the rest of the Sanhedrin following him and knowing that he might actually be thinking that Jesus might indeed be the Messiah. Nicodemus, to whom the privilege was given to hearing for the first time those words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but might have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Nicodemus, who for probably over three years, had watched Jesus, listened to Jesus, studied about Jesus, had finally come to the place where he had to make a decision, and his decision was to follow Jesus. And it was Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph, who took him down from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea took him down from the cross and placed him in a grave. It was Nicodemus who decided that he was going to minister to Jesus. And I think that's something, a part of the Christian life and our response to Jesus we don't think about a lot. Do you think about the fact that, that when you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, that that ministers to him? Have you ever thought about the fact that when, when you decide to do something that he asks you to do, that you're ministering to Jesus? Have you ever really stopped to think that what Jesus said in Matthew 25 he meant that when you did something for someone else out of your love for, for them, you were doing it as unto Jesus? And so the question I want to ask you this morning about Nicodemus' reaction is how often are you willing to minister to others because of what he's done for you? You see, what I love about the story of the cross and the story of the people who were there, it raises a question in my mind, how am I responding to Jesus today. 
not just when I first accepted him as my Lord and Savior back when I was a young person. Not just when I decided that God was calling me into ministry and I went, went kicking and screaming to seminary. Probably shouldn't have said that. Not just when I was ordained as a pastor, but how am I responding to Jesus today? I can't answer that question for you. I just hope you're willing to ask the question for yourself. For yourself. I really believe, I really believe that the story of the people who were there is left for us to read, not just so that we can know that only a few people of his followers were there, not just so that we can know that how badly he was mistreated, not just so that we can know that most people wanted him crucified. The story of who was there was written down to challenge you and me living over 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years later. That story was written so that we would ask ourselves the question, the same question that Pilate asked the crowd, what will I do with Jesus? And may our response be that not of a religious leader at that time, not of, of the people who should have known, but may it be the response of a Roman centurion standing guard, my Lord and my God. You are my life.